Uh, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're continuing our series uh, on refocusing on Jesus. Uh, the question I want to ask you this morning is this. Why are religious people so angry? Why are people who claim to have uh, some uh, modicum of faith seem to be walking around with uh, a bit of a chip on their shoulders? Let me put it in maybe practical terms. Why is it that uh, in talking to my daughter, I find out that, that one of the people that uh, she's trying to share her faith with is very interesting in, interested in hearing a little more about Jesus and who he is and, and what he's all about, but doesn't want to have anything to do with organized religion. How does that disconnect happen? Why are religious people so angry? Why is it that one of the... the, the biggest disappointments in my very earliest years in ministry were that I found out that a man uh, with whom I was spending some time in a church where I was serving who was talking to me about what it was like to be a Christian father and a Christian husband actually had a drinking problem that led him to beat his wife and his children. Why is it that religious people are so angry? People who claim to have faith. People who claim to be in a relationship with God at times can appear to be some of the the angriest and most resentful people walking around on the planet. And there seems to me that that that's radically wrong. As you look at Jesus, as you look at his life and his ministry, and as you look at at the idea of, of discipleship, of those who follow him modeling his life, those of us who claim to be Jesus' disciples, that we actually look something like him, you don't find a whole lot of anger. You don't. You don't find a chip on Jesus' shoulder, so to speak. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture this morning that's found in Matthew chapter 5. And it's actually three different stories. It's a a relatively lengthy passage. I'm going to read about 15 verses. And it's going to give three different encounters that Jesus has with the religious people of his day and their reaction to him and his reaction to them. Because I think every church and every Christian, for that matter, is in danger of practicing a religiosity that is absent the person of Jesus Christ. And so I want to look at the contrast in these passages and and maybe ask some practical questions of us this morning. So with that in mind, Luke chapter 5, beginning of verse 17 and reading through verse 35, hear the word of God. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there and had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was on him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, I've got to stop there for just a second to make sure you understand this. When it says they let him down through the tiles, it doesn't mean that the owner of this home had a nice skylight in his roof. It means that they took the tiles off of the roof, and then they dug a hole in the roof, okay? So basically, they destroyed this guy's house, all right? That's, that's really what happened. It sounds really nice. Luke makes it sound really delightful, but the guy who owned the house just probably wasn't happy. But anyway, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered. And he said to them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or say, rise and walk. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what uh, he had, uh, had been lying on and went home glorifying God. I'm surely to his delight and to the homeowner's utter amazement. <laughs> and amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Okay, that's story number one. Here's event number two. And as after this, he went out, and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in his tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there were a large number of tax collectors and others reclining with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And now the third event in the life of Jesus and religious people. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, the world does not need more religious practice. Father, the world doesn't need more people to talk about things of faith. Father, the world needs a Savior. And the world needs disciples of that Savior to follow in His footsteps. God, even as I ask the question, why are religious people so angry? I see that temptation welling up in my own life. So, Father, may we not walk through this passage and, and, and uh, wipe our foreheads and say, wow, huh? I'm glad that doesn't describe me. But, Father, may we be very, very careful and ask that our hearts would be open to what you want to say to us today. Father, we'd long for Green Tree to be a place where we're brokenhearted people for Green Tree to be a place where we're brokenhearted people can receive healing. Maybe just in the form of a hug, maybe in the, not in even being able to answer the, the deeper questions, but just in knowing that there's somebody who cares about them. Father, we long for Green Tree to be a place that has a passion to bring people to Jesus. But we too, Lord, are, are fallible. And we too can fall into a, a pattern of simply practicing religious activity while our hearts never change. So, Lord God, I pray this morning that you would forgive my sin, that you would keep me from standing in the way of what you want to say to us, and that, Lord Jesus, you would come, that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I ask the question, why are religious people so angry? Maybe we could put it this way. We want to be careful that the tone of this particular spiritual family reflects Jesus' heart. And it draws the lost uh, by our attitudes and by our actions instead of, instead of driving them away. 
Instead of creating wedges between people, we want to create highways so that the gospel can, can penetrate into each one of our lives. And we see in this passage of Luke, uh, very, very zealous people. The, the Pharisees were not bad guys, so to speak. They were very, very ca- careful to practice their religion down to the nth degree. And yet we also see in this passage people who are miserably lost, people who are standing in the very presence of the kingdom of God being ushered into history, and they miss it completely. It's literally as if they are spiritually blind. And as we walk through this passage and ask the question, what's the difference between religious people and between disciples of Jesus? Let's not be too quick to place ourselves on the side of the disciples without first examining our hearts and see if there may be a bit of a Pharisee in each one of us. I have three observations about religious people and three observations about disciples of Jesus in this text. If, you're, if you happen to be taking notes or kind of want to know how we're progressing, I always want to know, how's he doing? <laughs> how far along is he? How much more do I have to go? So we have three observations about religious people and three observations about disciples of Jesus. First, religious people always assume authority and accuracy for themselves. Religious people always assume authority and accuracy for themselves. Look at verse 17. On one of those days, he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem. I think Luke picked his words very carefully. I don't think Luke said they were sitting there by mistake. Luke could have said they were all gathered and were listening to Jesus. He could have said they were all there to see what they could learn. It doesn't say that. It says they were sitting there, and I think their posture speaks volumes about their attitude. You know, everybody talks about body language these days. You know, if you're talking to somebody and they go like this, you know, it might mean that they're not quite sure they're going to let you in to their life. You know, everybody talks about don't uh, be careful not to get in somebody's space. It mean that they're not quite sure they're going to let you in to their life. You know, everybody talks about don't uh, be careful not to get in somebody's space. You don't want to get too close if you're not intimate with a person. We can read from body language something about the thoughts and attitudes of people, and this is no different. And I think Luke said that because I believe the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there with their arms folded saying, Jesus, I don't know if I am going to believe what you say because I am the self-ordained judge. I'm the one who's going to make the decisions here. I'm the one who's in power. It's not you. You're going to have to prove to me that you're who you claim to be. I think that probably describes a lot of us when we come to church. Are we worshiping or are we sitting here? <laughs> I think there's the posture may look the same, the outward may look the same, but the inward heart, the reality can be radically different. I know at times I read my Bible with my arms folded, saying, Jesus, I'm not sure I want to hear from you today. I think I'm going to run the deal for myself. We have to be careful that we don't be too quick to judge Jesus, but rather open ourselves up to hear what he has to say. Because to, uh, to put yourself in that position of kind of being the, the self-ordained judge uh, means that you have a presumption that you know what's right. Look at verses 20 and 21. They bring these guys and they, they bring them before Jesus and, and uh, Jesus has compassion. In verse 20, it says he saw their faith. And he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And look at the, the, uh, re, the uh, response to the scribes and the Pharisees. They begin to question, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? In other words, who is this that is dishonoring God? This person is, is not a disciple. This person is not a Pharisee. This person is not a religious leader. But, but rather, he's our worst enemy. He's done the very worst thing you could possibly do. Who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? There's a presumption on their part that they were right. 
And they never considered the option. It never dawned on them that the messianic age had come and that they were standing in the presence or they were sitting in the presence of God in the flesh. Well, what happens? What's the result when religious people, so to speak, take this attitude of authority and accuracy? Well, first of all, it brings contempt for others. Notice in this story, I'm not going to go back and and read through it, but notice their attitude towards the guy who was let down through the roof, the guy who couldn't walk, the guy who was so desperate to get to Jesus that when they saw the crowds, he said to his buddies, look, let's go up on the roof and and let's cut a hole. Get out the picks and the shovels because I've got to get to Jesus. And what about those guys who said, whatever we do, we've got to get our buddy down there at the feet of Jesus because that's his only hope. And the Pharisees look at that kind of faith and that kind of commitment, and they're not impressed. There's no joy. There's only contempt. They don't care that he's been healed. All they look at is that God, that, that, that this one who calls himself the Son of God is rocking their boat, and that he's bringing something that they believe is inaccurate, and they simply have contempt. They're also skeptical that God will work outside of their understanding of him. They have God in a box is the way we would put it in our day and age. God can do this, this way, but that's all. And Jesus is kind of over here tearing the box down and saying, no, there's some things that are radically different that you don't understand, and they want nothing to do with it. They also ignore their own personal need. It it, it also never dawned on them to ask the question, do I need forgiveness of sins? I think about this for just a second. If if the Messiah is standing in the room, and he's saying to people, I see your faith, and I'm going to forgive your sins, don't you think that, that it might cross your mind to raise your hand and say, could I have my sins forgiven too? <laughs> Don't you think that might be something that passes through your brain? I mean, if you really look at your life, I'm not going to judge you. I don't need to judge you. You judge yourself. I, I, I look at my own life. I don't have to go back 24 hours to find my last sin, friends. And if Jesus is offering forgiveness, I don't think my reaction is going to be to say, who blasphemes here? But I hope that my reaction is saying, can I get some too. If you're given it, I really need it. But they ignored their personal need. And I think the end result of this is that if there's a community of people that live in this way, it really drive, it really does drive others away. There's no welcoming. There's no heart for others. What we have to spend our time doing is protecting who we are. And we might let you into our circle, maybe, if you follow all of our, all of our guidelines. But there's no sense of compassion. There's no sense of personal need. And I think, quite frankly, that's why religious people are so angry because they don't understand why everybody isn't just like them. Secondly, religious people hate those who don't follow their rules. Let's go on to the next event in Jesus' life. Look at verses 27 and following. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. I could preach a whole sermon on that, but I won't do that to you this morning. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and with sinners? These folks who were supposed to be people that led people to God, they're the folks that were supposed to be the shepherds of the people, were incensed by the seeking mindset of the Pharise- of Jesus. The Pharisees said to themselves, there's no way a tax collector can be invited into the kingdom of God. Now, in that day and age, tax collectors were bad guys. 
They lived by extortion. <laughs> they lived by bullying people. They, they lived by cheating people out of their income. And they, and they weren't bashful about getting more for themselves and sharing it with their little group of cronies and making everybody else suffer at their expense of having more money. We're not saying that Levi was a good guy. But notice their anger. Notice their resentment that this person could find grace, that this person could find forgiveness. They wouldn't even walk into Levi's house. This conversation had to have taken place outside of Levi's house because no Pharisee would be found dead there. I mean, there was a hatred and an animosity that ran deeper than probably you and I can imagine. And Levi is having a party. And the Pharisees are standing outside and saying, how could Jesus stoop this low? This person is of no worth. This person is of no value. He ought to be an outcast. A lot of you know that my wife Cindy works at Kirkwood High School, and she works with uh, students that are called at-risk students. That's a, that's a really nice name for saying kids who are in deep, deep trouble. Uh, most of her students are African-Americans who live inside the city of St. Louis, maybe 10 miles from here, and yet they might as well live in a different universe. So radically different than if you're a high school student today, what you're growing up with. For those of us who may be raising children, what, what these kids are experiencing, it looks nothing like what our kids are experiencing. They're so far behind the curve, you can't even, I can't even begin to wrap my mind around the mountain that they would have to climb to come out of their circumstances. And it's interesting to see people respond to what Cindy does. Some people really, uh, and not just Cindy, there are others at the high school that do this, but there are people that jump on board and say, how can we help? And there are other people that say, you know what? Those kids are the troublemakers. Those are the kids that won't pay attention in class. Those are the kids that, that keep getting uh, detentions and they, they, they're not prove, proving that they're worthy of our help. You know, they've got to meet us halfway. People that have never stopped to think about what those lives must be like living in the conditions in which they live but are very quick and very easy to pass judgment and then go home and lay their pillow on their head at night and sleep just fine. Friends, hatred will numb your soul to the needs around you. And religious people hate those who don't follow their rules, who don't fit in their box. And yet they believe that their rules make them okay. Notice how Jesus answers their question in verse 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, the Pharisees believe that their rules made them okay. Jesus isn't saying that the Pharisees are righteous and therefore they had no need of them. He was saying, you're so blind you can't even see that you're terminally ill. You don't even realize that I've come so that someone like you could have salvation too. They can't can't see past their own self-righteousness. What's the result of this kind of community? Well, first of all, there's no need for evangelism. There's no need to to welcome anybody else. And there's no need to go out and look for the lost because you know that you've been found and somebody's going to have to live up to your standards before you allow them in. They wouldn't know evangelism if it hit them in the head with a two-by-four. And humility and graciousness are not seen as character traits to be exemplified, but they're character flaws. Thirdly, religious people mask their unbelief with piety. Look at the third interaction that they have with Jesus in verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. That's another way, kind of speaking in the third person, or so do our, our disciples do this. But yours eat and drink. Religious people mask their unbelief 
with a piety. They're using this godly activity and fasting and prayer are good things. We've just come out of three weeks of prayer and fasting as a congregation. I think really positive things have happened in our, con- in our congregation during that time. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the context for prayer and fasting before we end this morning. But they're taking this activity, they're using this godly activity as a club to beat Jesus over the head. To say, you know what, Jesus, you've got this all wrong. Your, your disciples don't do what everybody else does, what, what we deem right. And they resent the joy in others because deep down in their souls they have none. Why are religious people so angry? Well, what's the result of this attitude? The, the word I, I've used is crabby. <laughs> religious people are crabby. They're crabby when people don't play by their rules. They're they're crabby when people don't live up to their expectations. They see the world through a certain lens, and only that lens, and nothing else will do. And they reject any notion that perhaps they have lost the understanding or perhaps never grasped the understanding of a personal relationship that they need for their forgiveness of sins. And ultimately what they do is they make faith repulsive to others. That's why my daughter's friend said, I, I want to know more about Jesus, but I don't want to be around organized religion. Because religiosity, instead of a relationship with Jesus Christ, makes faith repulsive. I think I, I, I've told you about my, my little survey I do when I go to restaurants and I, and I talk to servers and I engage with them a little bit. And one of my favorite questions to ask is, when I think I've told you this before, what do you, what do you think when the people at the table you're serving, when they bow their heads and they pray before their meal? What do you think about that? And, and I bet at least eight out of ten servers say, this, say the same thing to me. Oh, we hate it because we know the tip's going to be so bad. <laughs> I had one woman tell me, you know what? A man left me a business card one time, and he said, uh, why would I give you more than a 10% tip? That's what I give God. Friends, if that's your attitude, could I ask you to do me a favor? Would you stay home and eat bologna? <laughs> would you stop and think about your life and how it impacts others, positively or negatively, for the kingdom of God. That's just one silly little example, but it makes a point. Now, again, the mistake we could make this morning is go, boy, good news, we're not religious people. Friends, be careful. (laughs) I see myself on this side of the ledger more often than I would care to admit. The purpose of this text this morning is not to say, hey, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys, but rather to say, where could there possibly be a toehold of this lie in my life? Where could it be that, I, that I've kind of settled on and relaxed into religiosity instead of a personal life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ? Are we going to be religious, so to speak, or will we rather be disciples of Jesus? Let me give you three observations about these disciples. Disciples of Jesus are committed to home renovation. Disciples of Jesus are committed to home renovation. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but you get the point. Uh, verses 18 and 19, they were trying to bring this paralyzed man to Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of, in front of Jesus. Friends, look at their desire to get their buddy to the Savior and, and, and his desire to be brought to Jesus. Again, we do a lot of different things at Green Tree Community Church. We're trying to plant a new church uh, down in Lafayette Square. We have community groups. We have children's ministry. We have a lot of different things going on at Green Tree, Sunday morning worship. But all of that is intended for one thing, to get people to Jesus. That's our goal. That's our purpose. 
and disciples of Jesus understand that. And they understand it in this context. It's because Jesus loves faith. Look at how Jesus responds. He sees this guy coming down there. You got to imagine Jesus watching the sawdust kind of fly and the, the saws go the, and the pickaxes go through the mud. And all this stuff's got to be falling in on top of him. You know, the gravity works, you know, everywhere. And you see him, you know, digging this hole, you know, and who knows, maybe one of the friends fell down in the process. And Jesus didn't stop and say, what are you guys doing? You've made a mess of my teaching ministry. What are you doing? Why? I got to go take a bath now. I can't believe in front of all these Pharisees, I'm trying to make a good example. I'm trying to get them to understand this. And here you guys are ruining the whole thing. Jesus looks at the hole of the roof. He looks at this guy coming down and he goes, isn't this the coolest thing you've ever seen in your life? This is outstanding. Hey, Pharisees, look at this. Look at what these guys, look at this faith. Is this not amazing? Hey, man, your sins are forgiven. Now be the guy on the pallet for just a second. (laughs) Thanks, Lord. That's not quite why I was here. (laughs) See, I got this leg problem. (laughs) But Jesus understood what needed to come first. And Jesus responded to their faith in the right way. Because, you know, as you and I look at this, when Jesus says, what would be, what, what's better to say or what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. Everybody, I bet you almost everybody in this room would say, as I would, oh, yeah, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because how do you know whether sins are forgiven or not? I mean, to walk, the guy would actually have to get out of the bed and walk. But you know what Jesus understood that you and I miss? <laughs> that it's infinitely more difficult to forgive sins than it is to make a lame man walk. For the creator of the universe, making a lame guy walk is nothing more than like breathing air. It's the simplest thing in the world. But in order to forgive sins, Jesus had to pay the price. He had to lay down his own life. You see, when he said to that guy, I'm sure a smile on his face, this is awesome, this is so cool. Hey, your sins are forgiven. Maybe somewhere in the back of his mind, he saw the image of the cross. And he remembered the terrible price that was going to have to be paid. So that man's eternity could be okay. So that his legs could be restored forever and not just for a little while. And Jesus knew he was the one that was going to pay the price of redemption. Jesus loves faith. And because of that, as his disciples, we're committed to joyfully engaging any obstacle in order to get people to Jesus. If you're here this morning because a friend brought you to, to Green Tree, a friend, maybe they've been bugging you, or you're here this morning, you're a high school student, and your mom and dad said, yes, you're getting up, you're going to church, come on. You know what? It's not because Green Tree is all that great of a place. You know, look, we meet in a cafetorium. I mean, who are we trying to kid, okay? You know, last week, Easter Sunday, those of you that weren't here in the first service, the sound went off like six different times we blew a fuse, okay? You know, we're, we're not, you know, anything high and big. And people are bringing you here not because they're so excited about you being a green tree. It's because they want to introduce you to Jesus. That's what we're compelled to do because we know his response to faith. Secondly, disciples of Jesus are compelled to celebrate. Look at this. That's what we're compelled to do because we know his response to faith. Secondly, disciples of Jesus are compelled to celebrate. Look at the, look at the second, the second uh, event, 27. He's walking outside. He sees a tax collector named Levi sitting there in the tax booth. Put yourself in Levi's place for a minute. Here comes Jesus, the one who's supposed to be Messiah, and he looks right at you. Now, Levi's under no misconception that he's a great guy. <laughs> Levi can't go to synagogue. 
He won't be allowed in. Levi can't go to temple and worship. He won't be allowed in. Levi's an outcast. The only people that love Levi are the people that get money from him, and they probably don't love him. They're just happy for the income or maybe his immediate family. But other than that, everybody despises Levi. Now the Savior of the world looks you right in the eye, and he knows everything about you. He knows all of the garbage. He knows all the junk. You can't pretend with this guy. You can't, can't look good on the outside because he looks into your heart. What's he going to say? What's he going to say? Jesus looks at Levi and says, Hey, Levi, come on. You're a part of the family too. You're included. Levi, Levi your money's killing you. Your, your hunger and your lust for more, it's destroying you from the inside out. You're going to die, Levi. So get up and come on. How does Levi respond? How any of us would respond? We got to have a party. (laughs) This is the greatest thing that has ever happened to Levi in his entire life. And so he does what anybody would do when they had the best news ever. He's going to celebrate. He's going to throw a party. Disciples of Jesus are compelled to celebrate because they resonate with the fact that they've been cured of a terrible disease. Look at what Jesus says to the Pharisee. Those who are will have no need of a phys- well or no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Levi knew he was sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Friends, disciples of Jesus get that. They understand that. They say, yes, I am sick, but yes, Jesus can heal me. What happens when you see your sin and all of its ugliness and you see the Savior in all of his glory? And you see the two of those things coming together and you see the forgiveness that is yours in Christ. If you don't celebrate, then you haven't come to Christ yet because you have a party. We were, um, uh, this last Wednesday night, half of our community group was in town and half of our community group was out of town. Some of them were, uh, were traveling and others of us were home. And so those of us that were home, there were about eight or nine of us. We said, you know what, we're not gonna miss spring break, but we're gonna condense it into four hours. And um, for, for four hours, we hung out together. And we laughed and we told jokes and we had just a, a big old time. And I kind of sat back from the table two-thirds of the way through the, the evening. And I went, you know what? This is kind of like the kingdom of heaven. This is the, what we sing in that song, A Foretaste of Glory Divine. This is a little picture of that. Because Christians have every reason in the world to laugh and celebrate and enjoy the glory that is ours in Christ. Why? Not because we're great people, not because we have it all figured out, but because God has had grace and compassion and mercy on sinners like us. And if that doesn't cause you to tap your feet, if that doesn't cause you to celebrate, if that doesn't cause you to lift your glass and a toast, I don't know what on earth will. Disciples get it. They're compelled to celebrate. And thirdly, disciples of Jesus have a context for life. They come to Jesus and they say, look, the disciples of John, they fast often and they offer prayers and so do our disciples, but yours eat and drink. That's not a way of saying they have lunch today. It's a way of saying, you know, they're going out and they're, they're partying a little too much. They, they're, they're, they're a little too happy, Jesus. Come on now, you need, to, you need to settle them down just a bit, okay? And Jesus says this, can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast in those days. Disciples of Jesus have a context for life. We understand that we live in what theologians call the now but not yet. I stand in the grace of God today. I celebrate that today. But you know what? I still live in a broken world. I still live in a world that at moments 
The pain can be so crushing that it makes you feel like it's darkness all around you and you can't see the light of day. I still live in a world where children starve to death. I still live in a world where there are people that don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. I live in a world with alcoholics and with pedophiles. I live in a world that is so broken beyond recognition, if we would pull our heads out of the sand and look around, we would probably just sit down and weep (laughs) because the bridegroom isn't here right now. And everything hasn't yet quite been put right. And so our celebration, foundational as it is, has a tinge of caution (laughs) and a tinge of soberness that says we're not yet home. The party has not quite yet begun. And so we celebrate, but we're also somber. We're able to weep with those who weep. We're able to understand the struggle that people have in coming to faith and why they have doubts and why they're discouraged. And we may not have all the answers, but we're able to wrap our arms around them and say, let's walk together. Let's follow Jesus together because we know that that day is coming. And so what happens as we have this context for life is that we're patiently waiting for the groom to arrive. But we're busy with preparation. We're preparing ourselves. We're always asking those personal questions. How am I doing with the Lord? Am I following Jesus? Am I walking with him? Have I gotten off the path? Do I need to go to repentance? Do I need to spend some time in prayer and fasting? Do I need to get, get before the Lord and get right? But we're also in the business of preparing others. We're pointing them to the coming of the Lord Jesus. You see, friends, I don't think this text is so much just an example between religious people and between disciples of Jesus as much as I think it's a call to action on our part. The disciples in this passage are busy. (laughs) They're busy getting a guy through a roof so that he can see Jesus. They're busy having a party at a tax collector's house. They're busy celebrating. Why? Because the groom is present, and there's a day coming very shortly when the groom will be back. In your day, in my day, we may not see the physical return of Jesus. It might be 500 years from now. I don't know because God didn't tell us. But I know that pretty shortly, within a few decades, I'm going to be standing before Jesus, and so will you. 100 years from now, every person in this room will have stood before Jesus. And on that day, I want to be ready to celebrate. I want to be ready to join the party, to lift my hands. Because if you've ever been to a wedding, you know that it's not a somber occasion. I've been to a lot of your wedding receptions, and quite frankly, some of your wedding receptions were pretty doggone good. (laughs) And I left before they really got cranked up. (laughs) But I've never been to a wedding celebration where I've been, well, isn't that a lovely bride? (laughs) Isn't he a swell groom? Let's eat our potato salad and go home. No, you jump up and you dance. Some of you dance on tables. I've seen it. Some of you get a little bit excited. You know why? Because it's a day for celebration. Friends, that day is coming. Disciples of Jesus, prepare for that day. We're not worried about religiosity. We're not worried about all the trappings. We want to know Jesus. We want to point people to him. Disciples of Jesus aren't angry. Disciples of Jesus are grateful for his healing touch. And they want to share that touch with others. Let's pray.